Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the hope and the life that is ours in Jesus. Uh, thank you that you have invited us because of the good and perfect work of Jesus into a relationship uh, with you. Uh, Lord, thank you that you are in the business of changing your people uh, to think and to act, to speak like Jesus. Uh, we pray during our time this morning that you would open our eyes, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive your word. God, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family, you may have a seat. Uh, if you have been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that uh, we have uh, celebrated the first uh, two Sundays of Advent. I'm going to light these candles, I think. There we go. Uh, if you uh, were with us the last two weeks, you also probably know uh, that I have forgotten to dismiss the children uh, both weeks. Uh, I am 0 for 2. Uh, there are five candles. If I nail it uh, the rest of the way out, uh, then I get a D minus. Which, you know, if you're playing baseball in your three for five Hall of Fame career, in academics, you're in trouble. And so I decided this morning that I was going to go out of my way uh, to help me not forget to dismiss the kids. And so early this morning, uh, I, I made my way to Harris Teeter and I made myself a sign. It's a subtle color. I didn't want it to stand out. It's pink, and it simply reads, Remember the kids. I thought to myself, James, someone can hold up this sign for you uh, after we light the Advent candle so you don't forget. Little did I know uh, that someone also was thinking about me this morning and decided to make their own sign. This is a true story. I just found out about this 20 minutes ago. Uh, Miss Jen, why don't you come forward? Uh, Miss Jen, this week, she felt sorry for me. She knew my memory is fleeting, it's fading, it's disappearing as I get older. And so you made your own sign. It simply reads, release the kids, which is similar to release the hounds. So between the two of us, I am hopeful that after Amelia comes and reads the passage this morning, uh, that I will remember to release the kids. Trust me, just because we have two signs, and I've talked about it for two minutes, there are no guarantees. And so I'm going to set this up front. Jen, thank you for that. Please, please do. Please do. I'm going to set that right there so I don't forget. I'm going to ask Amelia, if she would, uh, to come up. Our theme this week for Advent is joy. Uh, joy is, uh, or, or Advent is a word that um, helps us recall the first coming of Jesus some 2,000 years ago. Not only do we recall the first coming of Christ, but we also uh, remember as a church family that he has promised uh, to come again. And so we long for that day. Uh, we look forward to that day. Amelia, why don't you uh, read our word and our passage for the day? The third candle of Advent focuses on the theme joy. God sent us Jesus to bring us joy that is found in him. We celebrate the arrival of Jesus and the joy that is ours because of him. Matthew 2, 10 through 11. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed it down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Thanks, 
just light the candle. Thanks, Susie. Great job. Thanks, Amelia. I don't play favorites, but I, I think she's done the best. <laughs> kids, kids, it is your time. Uh, you are dismissed. <laughs> I think my review's coming up. I hope you've seen the growth from week, week to week. <laughs> One for three. Thank you, Dave. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a couple of uh, quick announcements before we jump into our passage uh, this morning. You may have received uh, email earlier this week sharing with you uh, the good news that we're celebrating and rejoicing over here. Uh, Anna Pierce has uh, accepted the role to be our new uh, executive administrator. She's overseeing our, uh, our volunteers in our assimilation process. Anna has served faithfully at Christ Point for a number of years uh, in many different ways, in our kids' ministry, our student ministry, and most recently overseeing our women's ministry. Uh, we're excited for the new season that God has for us. If you have an opportunity uh, to, to spend some time with Anna this morning, make sure that you congratulate uh, her, be praying for her, uh, her husband Andy, and for their kids as well. But we're excited uh, to add Anna to the team. Uh, if you have been at Christ Point for any length of time, you may have heard that we exist as a church uh, to point people to Jesus. There are four primary ways that we do that. Uh, we encounter the life-transforming power of the Word of God. We experience authentic community. Uh, we want to establish a culture of joyful service, and we want to engage all people. Uh, oftentimes when we think about engaging all people, we think naturally of missions, uh, both locally and globally. We should think that way. We want to think that way. But when we think about engaging all people, it, it doesn't only mean people outside these walls, but also people uh, inside these walls as well. Uh, earlier this week, uh, I came across a post from Rebecca McLaughlin. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's an author, an apologist, uh, and she wrote this. I thought it was so good, and I thought it served as a reminder for our church family. She wrote, my husband has three rules of engagement when we go to church. Uh, number one, an alone person in our gathering is an emergency. In other words, they are a priority. Number two, uh, friends can wait. And number three, introduce a newcomer uh, to someone else. I thought that was such a good reminder because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I come and see familiar faces, I'm naturally drawn to and attracted uh, to the familiar faces. That's not a, a terrible thing. Obviously, we want to be warm and loving uh, to our friends. Uh, but it was such a good reminder to me uh, as we move into the Christmas season and as we see uh, new faces and guests in this place for us to be able to go out of our way uh, to welcome them uh, to our house, to welcome them uh, to Christ Point. If you are here this morning and you are new or newer uh, to Christ Point, I'm so glad uh, that you are here. I welcome you. Uh, it is my hope and prayer that this place uh, may become home uh, for you. Uh, if you have uh, your Bibles, 
Uh, turn in them to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. Uh, as you're turning there, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, or at least a few of you, read the CP News. Kind of what I expected. Uh, if you read the CP News this week, uh, then you know that I have been, uh, I have been researching I mean, a lot been doing a lot of research. I'm not working on my PhD. I'm not pursuing a D-min, but I have been researching the top Christmas song of all time. Top Christmas song of all time. For those of you who did not read your CP News, if I were to ask you what's the top Christmas song of all time, what would you suggest would be number one? Apparently, a couple of you do read the CP News. Yes, I heard Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You. Quick show of hands. How many people think that that is the number one Christmas song of all time? And how many of you know Jesus? So, yeah, yeah. Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is not the number one Christmas song of all time. It's not. A song released in the 90s cannot be the number one Christmas song of all time. Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is a love song dressed up in a Santa suit. Right? It, 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 it's arguable that it's not even a Christmas song. And yet, that song, according to this article, is the number one Christmas song of all time. I am here to tell you that I firmly believe without a shadow of a doubt that a love song cannot be the number one Christmas song of all time. Or maybe it can. But not one written in the 90s, uh, but maybe one written some 2,000 years ago by Mary. Uh, it is recorded for us in Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 46. This is a poem or a song of Mary. It's a praise song. It's a worship song. Uh, Mary writes, speaks, sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on, my humble, uh, on the humble estate of his servant. Uh, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Uh, the words here written by Mary are known as the Magnificat. In Latin, it means my soul magnifies the Lord. Here, uh, we have a picture of Mary, the servant of God, exalting or praising the greatness of God. Her poem is full of quotations, of words from the Old Testament, particularly Hannah's prayer found in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Mary was, as 
You may know a young Jewish girl, and something that young Jewish girls were apt to do would be to memorize Scripture. They did not have a wana that was shortly after the life of Jesus that came later. But in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, there is recorded a song of Hannah. If you listen to the words, if you read the words, you will see the overlap in the words from Hannah to Mary. Mary writes, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Hannah writes, sings, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Mary's song was, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. She was carried along by the Holy Spirit as she wrote, but one could note that oftentimes what comes out of us is a reflection of what is inside of us. What comes out of us is a reflection of what is in us. As a young girl, Mary likely heard the word of God and committed it to memory. A scripture uh, became, at least in part, her spoken language. And may I suggest to you, church family, that it is no different for us. When we face unexpected circumstances in life, um, oftentimes what comes out of us is a reflection of what has been placed in us. As I read that this week, I just thought to myself again about the importance of knowing and loving of the Word of God. Make God's Word a regular part of your life. Wake up early in the morning and come to the Word and open it up and beg God to speak because He has. Uh, crack it open at lunchtime, listen to it as you drive, open it up uh, before you lay your head on the pillow at night. God's word is living and active. Thirst for the word of God. If you don't have a hunger for the word of God, if you don't have a longing for the word of God, ask God to give you a thirst and a hunger for the word of God. Uh, as we look forward to a new year, oftentimes we set New Year's resolutions. May I suggest to you that a good resolution is for you to daily spend time in the Word of God. Find something that works for you. Start small. Read a proverb a day. Uh, open up the Gospel of John and read a chapter a day. A year and a half ago, I personally started going through an app called the Bible Recap read a few chapters of scripture. I listen to a seven, eight-minute podcast. Uh, it's been so good for my soul. Um, what comes out of us is often a reflection of what we put in us. Now, when Mary heard uh, this word from the angel, she uh, responded in perhaps the only way she knew how. She, she spoke the word that had been implanted in her heart. What Mary is doing is she is responding in praise. Uh, Mary is worshiping. She hears uh, this word ultimately from the Lord and says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, 
my Savior. Soul and spirit in verses 46 and 47 uh, don't refer to a different aspect of our human personality. Mary isn't saying, hey, this part of me is worshiping and then this part of me is worshiping. She is saying, uh, everything that I am worships and magnifies the Lord. Um, that word magnify can mean a couple of different things. When we think about magnify, sometimes it refers to taking something that is small and making it large. Uh, if you are maybe in your 40s or a little older than that, perhaps you've reached a point in life when you need to take things that are small, like words on a page, and make them larger. You need to magnify them. I used to go out to a restaurant with uh, my father-in-law. I always laughed when he would get the check and he would look at it and look at it and look at it and look at it so he could see it. Eventually, he gave in and got some bifocals. He was trying to magnify uh, what was on that little page, take what was small and make it big. That's not what Mary's doing. Um, she is not taking the God of the universe, someone who's small, and trying to make him big. She's taking someone who is great, the God of the universe, and just saying, I magnify. I want you to see the greatness of God. I magnify the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary responds to the greatness of God in worship. Biblical worship, a biblical praise is a heart response to the greatness of God. Biblical worship and praise is a heart response to the greatness of God. Harold Best, in his book, Unceasing Worship, writes, the scriptures include or allude to just about every approach to worship there is. Organized, spontaneous, public, private, simple, complex, ornate, or plain. Yet, there is no comment anywhere about any one way being preferred over another. Listen to what he writes. He says, rather, it is the spiritual condition of the worshiper that determines whether or not God is at work. I love that last line. Rather, it is the spiritual condition of the worshiper that determines whether or not God is at work. Worship is about the heart. It's about a posture that we have toward God. Worship is not manufactured. It's not something that can be forced. It's not like when we tell our kids, you're going to do it and you're going to like it. Sing the song. It doesn't work that way. Worship is a response to the greatness of God. It's not solely dependent upon our circumstances. Our circumstances can impact or influence our, our worship Right? Because oftentimes our circumstances can stir something in us, but it's not solely dependent on our circumstances. I think about Mary's circumstances, and on one hand, she was given spectacular news. Like, you are going to bear the Savior of the world. That's good news. And yet, admittedly, Mary's circumstances would have been a mixed bag. Uh, uh, marriage at a young age wasn't uncommon during that day and age. Uh, pregnancies by the Holy Spirit, statistically speaking, were not on the rise. That was unusual. So when you see a young mother 
uh, traveling through the town square, a town so small that it was just a blip on the map. Some people, as we said last week, suggested it was about 200 people. Imagine Mary making her way across town, a young girl, a young pregnant girl, pregnant with a child from the Holy Spirit. And more than likely, um, amongst the crowd, that story doesn't always tell well. Uh, people at a local well might go, really? Are you sure? Did you hear? I don't know if I believe that. In other words, uh, Mary's experiences, her circumstances in life would have been a mixed bag. But, but worship uh, for Mary uh, is responding to the greatness of God. Her eyes here are fixed on the Lord. It reminds me of a bride when she walks down the aisle of a church. Uh, seldom is she distracted by the noise, by the coughs, by the sneezes, by the dress of those who have come. Instead, her eyes are fixed. Eyes are fixed on her groom. Like she, she's, she's looking at him as he's waiting for her to come down the aisle. The same is true of worship. There can be many distractions in the world. There can be many distractions in our own hearts. But worship is us fixing our eyes on the God of, of the universe and responding to him. Biblical worship is a heart response to a person. It's a heart response um, to Jesus. And so we worship him. The language here that Mary uses was certainly in reference to her circumstances, to her situation, but the figure of speech can apply to anyone who has experienced God's extraordinary deliverance. In other words, if God has done a good work in your life, um, then we can respond in much the same way. Right? We see the work of God in our hearts and in our lives. We know that God has brought us from death to life. He has changed us. He's given us new desires, new affections. He's filled our hearts with his love by the Holy Spirit. He's poured faith into us. He's given us a hope and a future. And so we respond to him and worship. And that's what Mary uh, does here. Mary is going uh, to respond to God in worship. This song, uh, the, these words um, are, are no longer primarily about Mary. Instead, they are primarily about God. From here on out, uh, God is the subject of every verb in the song. God is the subject of nearly every verb, and the verbs are all transitive, which is just a fancy way of saying they not only declare who God is, but what God does as the powerful deliverer of the needy and the oppressed. And so Mary is not only celebrating who God is, but what God does because of who he is. And so I just want us to walk through these of this morning and have our hearts full of gratitude and worship and praise to our good God. Mary, in verse 48, says, For he has looked on the humble estate 
of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Worship, praise God. Why? Because God notices the humble. God notices the humble, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. God pays attention to the seemingly unimportant. He sees the forgotten. Humble state here can mean both social and economic. Think about when you get your first home and you invite your family or your friends over and you say to them, welcome uh, to my humble home. What you mean by that is it's not much, but it's what we have. It can mean that, or humble estate or humble state can simply be referring to the humility that Mary possesses. Mary responds humbly. God notices the humble. God didn't step over Mary to get to someone more important, more influential, more popular. Isn't that good news for you and for me? For the times when you feel forgotten, for the times when you feel looked over, God notices you. And you don't have to be rich, you don't have to be famous, you don't have to be influential. God sees and notices his kids, worship him because he notices uh, the humble. For behold, from now on, all generations uh, will call me blessed. Worship God, not only because he notices the humble, but because God is mighty. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God here is referred to as the mighty one. A mighty one in verse 49 is derived from a Greek word that denotes a king as a rescuing hero. I mean, you can, you can almost picture, right, Christ the king, the conquering hero. Mary is worshiping God as king. He has done great things for me. I love those two little words at the end of that statement, uh, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. God who is all-powerful and all-wise, the God who is transcendent above his creation, above all that he uh, created, is also incredibly personal. He's a personal God. Uh, God is, is mighty, and he has done great things for you. It's easy sometimes to think that uh, God is a king uh, who sits in a castle, and we, his people, are outside the castle gates. Uh, we peer in, looking, hoping uh, to catch a glimpse of him, hoping to see him, maybe, just maybe, if we catch him at the right time. But the thought very much is that God is, is, is behind closed doors and high fences. And we only see him from a distance, but that's not the picture uh, that we have in Scripture. The picture that we have in Scripture is that God is a personal uh, God. He who is mighty has done great things for me and for you. The God of the universe, the King, uh, has invited you to dine at his table, and so worship him. 
I worship God because he is mighty. Worship God because he is holy. Holy is his name. Holy means apartness or separate or other. God is holy other, something that is totally different. The holiness of God admittedly is something difficult for us to grasp or understand. Every time I try to think about it or explain it, it can feel like a word salad. I'm just grasping for words somehow to explain the holiness of God. Sometimes in life, we, we try to explain holiness by talking about holy moments. Have you ever had a moment before in life where you've thought to yourself, this is different, this is unique, this is not normal what I am experiencing. This is a holy moment. I was talking to a, a dear friend recently who was uh, sharing with me that his father uh, passed away on Thanksgiving. Uh, during the last days of his dad's life, his dad was in his son's home. Uh, they were caring for him. Hospice uh, would come in and would care for him. And uh, when he uh, passed away, his family uh, honored him. And they came together and they prayed as a family and they reflected upon the life of their father. When um, his dad's uh, body was, uh, was picked up, they had placed it in, in the car. And uh, my, my friend asked his wife if she would do him a favor. My friend, a couple years ago, in the front end of the pandemic, um, learned how to play the bagpipes. Right? Who does that? Right? He learned how to play the bagpipes. And he said uh, to his wife, before uh, they took his father away, he said, would you go get my bagpipes? And my friend went into the driveway of his home, uh, and he played Amazing Grace on his bagpipes as they took his father Away. After the song, uh, my friend went down to his knees and just, I mean, just wept, you know. And he's telling me the story. His wife, she, she took a video of it. She's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this or not. But he was just telling me the story. And I just kept on thinking to myself, like, what a holy moment. <laughs> just, like, you can't plan that. You can't manufacture it. It just was, it was different. When we talk about the holiness of God, we are talking about someone who is different. It doesn't fit our categories. We grapple with words to try to ex explain the greatness of God. And I don't care how much of a wordsmith you are. Like, we all fall short. In the Bible, when people are confronted with the holiness of God, they, they are just undone. In a vision recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Scripture reads, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Later, at the end of God's story in Revelation chapter 4, 
Revelation 4, 8 reads, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We just don't have a category for the holiness of God. When, when, when we talk about holiness, oftentimes we think of stuffiness or, or, or we talk about how someone acts holier than thou. But when the Bible uh, talks about the holiness of God, uh, people, uh, God's people, God's world is undone. They praise and they worship. Mary, upon hearing the news that King Jesus, uh, she will bear, uh, she responds in worship because God is holy. Not only is God holy, but God is merciful. Verse 50 says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God being merciful means that even though we deserve punishment, he doesn't punish us. In fact, he blesses us instead. Mercy is the withholding of just condemnation. It's us not getting what we truly deserve. Throughout the Bible, God gives many illustrations of his mercy. God fully demonstrates his mercy to you and to me in the person of Jesus. Psalm 86, verse 15 says, You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is mercy, and there is an inseparable connection between God's mercy and God's love in the Word of God. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, uh, you have been saved. This isn't some far-fetched idea for others who've gone before us, or people out there somewhere. Uh, the mercy of God is for you and for me. Uh, worship God because he is merciful. Worship God because of his strength. Verse 51, he has shown strength uh, with his arm. Mary again notes the strength of God. She has shown, or he, God, has shown strength with his arm. This refers to the might of God. Oftentimes, uh, scripture will talk about God as if he has human features. God doesn't have human features, but scripture uh, paints a picture of God sometimes in such a way that we can understand. And when Scripture is talking about the arm of the Lord, uh, the Bible is talking about the strength of the Lord, God's strength or his might. There's kind of a, a funny, a humorous, maybe it's not humorous, story told in uh, Numbers chapter 11. God's people had been delivered from slavery. Uh, Moses, you may uh, remember, was their leader and God's people started to fuss because the menu that God put together. Like, they weren't big fans. They, they saw on the billboard today's special, manna. And they noticed that it was the same every day. 
And they got tired of the menu, and so they started complaining. And Moses responded, do I have to listen to this? Moses said, are you serious? They keep asking for meat, Lord, and it's driving me nuts. That's a, that's a paraphrase. That's not in the original Hebrew. But that's essentially what they're saying. Like we, We're tired of the menu, and Moses is tired of them. And so God responds essentially to Moses and says, Moses, I'm going to give them uh, what they want. If they want meat, I'm going to give them meat. I'm going to give them more meat than they know what to do with. I'm going to give them so much meat that their cholesterol is going to skyrocket through the roof. Again, that's a paraphrase. But he is going to provide meat for his people. And Moses responds uh, to, to God and says, um, are you going like, to kill all of the cattle to provide meat? Because this, that we're limited here. Like, we're, like we can only eat so much of this at a time. And God responds to Moses and says this, Moses has the arm of the Lord waxed short. Has the arm of the Lord waxed short? Another way, another way of thinking about it or saying it is that the God of the universe is saying to Moses, who do you think that I am? Like, do you really think that that is a problem for me? You think that I can't provide meat? Has the arm of the Lord waxed short? God is strong and he is mighty. And there is nothing that God cannot do. There is nothing that you face or that you will ever face where God shrugs his shoulders and said, that's beyond my pay grade. Worship God. He is strong and he is mighty. Worship God because of his sovereign rule. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 51. Verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Worship God because of his sovereign rule. Uh, go ahead, world leaders. Gather in your summits. Elect your officials. Move the chess pieces on your little political board. Angle for your uh, political party. Chase after your majority. Uh, make your alliances. Bend the ears of your strategic political partners and watch the God of the universe scatter the proud. In other words, God looks at the world leaders and if he sees fit, could decide to simply go, and the chess pieces would scatter. God rules and reigns on high. He is not dependent on our elected officials. He's not. He is the God of the universe. So worship him for his sovereign rule. Uh, worship God for his care of the poor. Verse 40, or 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has turned the world upside down in a world that thinks 
Um, to, ri- to be rich is to be successful, and to be poor is to be pitied. And, and the scripture says, no, he has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. There is a beauty in spiritual poverty. There's a beauty in coming to the Lord with a broken and a contrite heart, spiritually poor, and asking the God of the universe uh, to meet you. Uh, He will not send you away empty-handed. So worship him. Worship God for his care for the poor. Worship God for his faithfulness. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. God is faithful uh, to his promises, the promises that he makes to his people. All throughout the Bible, God is fulfilling his word to his chosen people. In his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, author James Edwards writes this about Mary's song. He says, this is not a hymn of the proud, but of the powerless. It's not just for deserts, but of unexpected grace. Not of a world fully controlled and determined by human powers, but overturned by divine comedy. God does not turn away from want and oppression, but toward both in compassion and rescuing intervention. In most religions, a meeting with God requires the low to ascend high, sinners to become saints. The Magnificat reverses all protocol and expectations. God, who is high, becomes low. He sees human need and initiates a revolution that reorders reality. The transcendent God intercedes on behalf of a lowly young woman and calls her blessed. The Almighty gives mercy to those who fear him uh, and scatters the proud, the rich, with filling the hungry and the needy with all good things. Uh, So worship and praise God. Uh, Praise God because he notices the humble. Uh, Praise and worship God because he is mighty Uh, He is holy, he is merciful, he is strong. God is sovereign, he cares for the poor, and he is faithful uh, to his sons and daughters. In other words, God is God, so worship him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we worship uh, your good name. You have revealed uh, yourself to us. You have opened our eyes, and you have caused us to see. And so we want to see you. We want to see you for who you are. We want to worship you because you notice the humble, because you are strong, because you are merciful, because you are holy. We want to worship you uh, because of your strength. We want to worship you because uh, you notice uh, the poor. You do not step over them or bypass them. You reach down uh, to them. We want to worship you for your faithfulness that you have demonstrated throughout all generations. And so this morning, 
we respond in praise. Uh, we lift our voices and we rejoice in your goodness. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.